This is Phantom Power. Episode 8 Test Subjects This is the first sound. All the noise, all the turmoil. So quiet. When will it stop? It stop. It stop. It stop. It stop. It stop. So quiet. So peaceful. So serene. So quiet. So peaceful. And you can't forget. So quiet. So peaceful. You can't ever forget. So quiet. So peaceful. You can't forget. You forget. You forget. You forget. feel as if I'm being thrown into a, a space or a place that I am experiencing as anxiety, that sense of the alarms, uh, the hurrying footsteps, um, the dramatic voice, and the time passing. It's just a kind of a... It's, it's a terror of time <laughs> passing. It's, it's, it's Jonathan Crary's 24-7 being made manifest in my, in my ears. Yeah, these are sounds I've been playing around with. Uh, our guest for today's episode just shared this archive of amazing sounds with me. And so I was just sort of, you know, playing with them, putting them into a collage. But a lot of them do seem to induce a bit of a feeling of dread. <laughs> Uh, no, I liked it. I, I, I liked it. It was uh, it was full of portent, um, and I was wondering. You know, it was almost as if I was in a radio play where most of the dialogue had been removed, and I just had the sound effects left. Yeah, and, and as we'll learn, uh, you know, these sounds are sort of a relative of radio drama, and believe it or not, they're intended to be healing sounds, Chris. The, way yes i mean the idea that the <laughs> clock was kind of coming forwards and going backwards into the distance this this stuff oh, is pure terror <laughs> i did mess around with the sounds a little bit but but yeah these are sounds that are supposed <laughs> to help you become the best person that you can possibly be welcome back to another episode of phantom power where we explore the world of sound in the arts and humanities i'm mac haygood and I'm Chris Cheek. Chris is a poet and performance artist. I'm a scholar of media and communication. Welcome to season two. Today we examine the strange and obscure history of sound being used as a diagnostic tool for the betterment of human beings. Now, how could anyone think that the chilling film noir sounds we just heard could possibly be good for you? Well, maybe maybe I should just uh, let our guest <laughs> explain it. Exactly. So, so let's introduce her. My name's Mara Mills. I'm an associate professor of media, culture, and communication at New York University. 
where I also co-direct the Center for Disability Studies. Mara is a scholar of both media studies and a scholar of disability studies. Right. But the reason she's on our show is that she combines these two seemingly different fields by working in sound. But the mysterious recordings that we were just listening to have to do with research that Mara was doing on books for the blind. Well, in 2015, I was collaborating with Helen Selsden, who's the archivist at the American Foundation for the Blind, to digitize their talking book collections. So we took the entire collection because they were fairly fragile to a like high-end digitization company in New York. I had a grant from the National Science Foundation to pay for the digitization. We, so we toted in my, the trunk of my car tons and tons of these records to this company and had them digitize them for us. They gave us back an external hard drive with completely unlabeled WAV files, which meant that I had to go through and listen to each one of the files to figure out what it was and to correlate it to whatever the title was on the finding aid, if there even was one. It was extremely time consuming. So Mara has all of these digitized, unlabeled files. And then meanwhile, she gets this really great invitation to be a visiting scholar at the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science in Berlin. So by day, she's doing all of this stuff there at the Institute. And then by night, she's sitting in her Berlin apartment just listening to these strange files. Many of which, in fact, are pretty remote from what one would think of as a book. So listening to these files, many of them were, in fact, talking books, which were novels narrated by famous Broadway stars in New York in the 1930s and 1940s for blind readers made in the AFB studios. I expected that. The Happy Prince by Oscar Wilde, recorded solely for the use of the blind in the talking book studios of American Foundation for the Blind Incorporated, read by Eva Legalian. High above the city on a tall column stood the statue of the Happy Prince. He was gilded all over with thin leaves. Some of them were very unusual. It would be sort of 60 minutes of electronic beeping, which turned out to be the output of reading machines, scanner-based electronic reading machines that were text-to-tone, things like the Visitoner or the Stereotoner. Uh, What's a Visitoner? Well, uh, the Visitoner is like a, a brand of something called an optophone. Okay. And the, and the Visitoner was actually made really nearby to us in Dayton, Ohio. Nice. Under a contract from the United States Veterans Administration. Right. But basically, it's this little machine that you would pass over a line of printed text, and it would turn the letters into these sort of musical tones that uh, blind people were able to interpret as letters that is super interesting so they have to learn the alphabetic tonal correlation yeah and they can listen to their utility bills i mean it was used for these very like sort of perfunctory things just like uh the mail came in i I gotta see what my bills are and they could listen to it like that i love that you're hearing capital b now Here's capital C. And then I came across this album. It seemed to me to be a series of nonsense words and completely 
um, ambiguous, nonsensical, disconnected sentences. So a narrator with a um, ambiguously gendered voice, um, sounding like a speaker from mid-century radio, reading out sentences like, you touch and a little comes off in your fingers. You touch and a little comes off in your fingers and you have to dust off your fingers. And then moving on to another sentence totally disconnected from that one. A long shiver, but it passes. Steps coming. And my mind was racing to understand what those sentences could mean. Was this about a sugar donut? Was it about bicycle grease? What could this possibly be about? Afraid. Afraid. The chair was hard, but... You knew she didn't care, and she sat very straight, and around her, there was silence. He picked up the little thing and turned it in his fingers, and it seemed he might never stop turning it, and feeling of it. They walked together slowly, their feet making a sound together. I decided I had to know more about what this was, who made this, what was it meant to do. All the noise, all the turmoil. When will it stop? So quiet, so peaceful, and so serene. So it turned out that the American Foundation for the Blind, the AFB, had actually commissioned this record in 1952. And they commissioned it to be an auditory version of the thematic apperception test or TAT, which by then was a fairly well-known means of psychological testing for sighted people. It was a series of still images, sketches, really black and white sketches, designed in the 1930s by psychologist Henry Murray, who worked at Harvard, and artist Christiana Morgan. The images that Morgan drew were meant to be extremely ambiguous. They were meant to be generalized. They were meant to be interpretable in many, many different ways by a wide range, almost a universal range of people. And the viewer, in this case of the visual tats, was usually asked in a psychological office to look at one of the particular images and then to write a story about it. After that story was written about the image, the difficulties arose. Um, The psychologist then had to figure out themselves how to interpret that story, what it meant, what it meant about that person, what it meant about their latent personality traits or about their feelings. Yeah, and the the thematic apperception test is uh, just the story of it is really fascinating. And, you know, Morgan and Murray were really interesting people. You know, Morgan was this artist and writer um, and she was an amateur psychoanalyst who collaborated with, you know, the famed psychoanalyst Carl Jung. Right. And Murray was this Harvard psychologist. And the two of them became lovers, which was actually something that Jung had recommended so that they could release their creative energies. 
I say nothing. <laughs> the 1930s. <laughs> <laughs> and, it was and, all going off. Yeah, yeah, it really was. And, and That's I what happens with prohibition. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess it worked because they created the thematic eye perception test after that. And the TAT became one of the most widely used projective tests in the world. The auditory version of the projective test, the one commissioned by the AFB, was produced by a psychologist in Hartford named Seidel Braverman, and also a fairly well-known blind memoirist and radio script writer who lived in New York named Hector Chevigny. Um, Chevigny had written a memoir called My Eyes Have a Cold Nose. That was a reference to his service dog, his eyes. So Chevigny, having ex experience in radio um, as a scriptwriter, but also as a producer, had lots of contacts in New York from whom he could acquire sound effects, voice actors, and he helped Seidel produce this oral analog to the visual tat. So the auditory projective test had several sections, and I had to listen to the whole thing to figure out what those sections were. So I've now administered about 40 auditory projective tests to myself. strong and straight, and seemed destined never to come down, moving and then stopping, and then moving again, but always forward, forward, soft, very soft and warm, and there never seemed The opening section contained these ambiguous descriptions of objects or scenes, and at the beginning of this section, listeners are instructed to tell what happened what led up to it, and what the outcome will be. And that's followed by these very ambiguous descriptions of scenes or objects. It was harsh, high and loud, and it kept on and on, and you couldn't stop it. You couldn't stop it at all. So the second section of the auditory projective test is a series of dialogues in an invented language, a completely nonsense language, but spoken in very highly charged or affective intonation. To my mind, <laughs> to my interpretation, these dialogues sounded either extremely angry and heated or extremely sad. Um, of course, the whole point of it is, is to figure out what the listener's interpretation of the dialogues are. But there was no way to know what the language was because they were completely invented words. Well, am I draft the numbi Well, you well and told me to roll it human numbi you You draft amu? Oh, I draft am you. Zant you served me? I draft a draft, ca you nap. Zoft are you risk val musti dro damu it should be? I do val musti to on the traps at Delotri. But I'm right through it won't with the chest as your Dedro. Then zil let me val you The listener was asked to tell a story about what the dialogue was about, to put words in the actors' mouths. It turns out that these voice actors were from New York. They knew Hector Chevigny. They were trained in double talk, a strategy used by actors or radio, you know, people on stage or in, on radio, to use invented words, usually just one at a time, sprinkled into a speech, like for humorous effect. Now, that's a liturgy clap to less. It isn't liturgy, not So that's why I said earlier that uh, 
this recording or these recordings were a relative of radio drama. Right. Right. Because this blind script writer, Chevigny, had access to all of these great voice actors to create these tests. So I'm thinking about traditions of nonsense poetry. I'm thinking about Russian futurist transrational Zaum, the idea of an invented language that would cross national boundaries. I'm thinking about Esperanto. I'm mm -hmm. thinking about uh, um, other traditions of nonsense poetry like Lewis Carroll's The Jabberwocky. I'm thinking mm -hmm. about Hugo Ball with his Dadaist poems. I'm thinking about Kirchfitter's Ursonata. There's a whole world here of composing and invented languages. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about the peas and carrots, peas and carrots that they used to teach us as actors if, if you were supposed to be whispering in the background. Right, and kind of pig <laughs> Latin. Yeah. We're into a territory of opacity and transparency in relation to what words signify, what they bring, not just a kind of sort of little literal translations um, and literal interpretations, but the analogs, the metaphors, yeah, the dirty stuff. The ways that that sounds and words conjure things within us. Right. Yeah. Not jump twist, modding drill. Can I plead the rooklets in Diff Bree, Edor Hotfellow? No, no, no. I'm Morty. I plead the roomish. Guys, Bella Chowsy. Well, it's my gish. Trap isn't Cadrelli. Then there's a final section of the record with several tests which just have nonverbal sounds. And these sounds were from the ABC sound effects department. Um, each test would have 10 or so sounds played in a row, a gunshot, a dog barking. And the listener was instructed to aggregate these sounds into, if not a story, into some sort of cohesive anecdote to explain what these sounds are doing assembled together. And the listener would either verbally, in each of these cases, say out their explanation um, to a psychologist or um, write down a story or a paragraph about them and then, and then submit it to that psychologist. So how widespread was this kind of uh, work with auditory perception on uh, the, the tests? So I think that this test itself wasn't like really used that much with blind people. Okay. Um, it was a little bit. But as Mara did more research, she came to realize that the use of sound for this kind of projective testing mm -hmm. was pretty widespread. And in fact, the history of 
psychological projective testing is at least as much sonic as it is visual. Well, after listening to the auditory projective test, I wanted to know if this was one of a kind or if it was part of a bigger genre. And I immediately discovered that, of course, the entire field of projective testing probably starts with auditory projective testing, even if it wasn't called that immediately, and dates to um, word association tests produced at the beginning of the 20th century by people like Carl Jung, most famously by Carl Jung, but there were precursors to him. In Jung's word association test, he published, I think, his first article on it in 1910. He wrote a list of test words, you know, green, water, ink, which he would then read in the clinical setting to a patient and ask the patient to respond to him with the very first word that came to their mind, creating a sort of couplet of terms between um, the tester and testee, the therapist and the patient. And he then would try to interpret what that meant, either with the patient or on his own. All right, Chris, let's do this. Green. Grass. Water. <laughs> I can't say bong on the radio. Um, <laughs> bong? <is that> what <laughs> <you said? laughs> well, bong water, it was that sure. famous band. Yeah, great um, band. Uh, yeah, Ink. okay. Um, pollution. Window. Vibrancy. Friendly. Tea. Cold. Map. Village. Idiot. <laughs> uh, I really liked uh, that you call that you came up with poison after ink. <laughs> never give never give a poet a word association test. I guess. <laughs> right. Well, I think of writing as pollution. <laughs> after looking into Jung, I decided I wanted to follow up more specifically on other recorded auditory projective tests. Uh, and in fact, there were a ton of projective tests recorded on phonograph records starting in the 1930s with the advent of electrical recording. One of the earliest that I came across, shockingly, was made by B.F. Skinner. Yeah, I mean, he was a guy who really didn't care about interiority very much, right? He liked to call the brain a, a black box, you know, and just had inputs and outputs. He was a postdoc at the time at Harvard, and he created something that he called the verbal summator. Uh, uh, I, uh, uh. Basically, he had been working late nights in the lab as a postdoc and hearing all sorts of weird machine sounds, and those machine sounds he was fantasizing, hallucinating, were speech. Things The machines were telling him, go outside, go outside, because he was exhausted and didn't want to work in the lab anymore. And he thought to himself, oh, what would it be like to make a record with speech as if it was heard behind a wall or heard in another room, muffled speech. And I could play this record then for people and it would evince what he called verbal behavior from them. 
because he was already getting interested in behaviorism. But this, for Skinner, was still quite close to something even Freudian. In fact, he even says in his report about it that it might be useful for some sort of Freudian analysis, that you would get to know something about someone's personality. But he quickly moved way farther into his behaviorist studies, which were all about the seemingly endless potential to train animals and humans to do totally new things. The human is a blank slate. After encountering the Skinner test, I learned that there was another entire subfield of auditory projective tests based on music. A number of psychologists, some at Harvard, some colleagues of Skinner's like Carl Kunze, either created new recordings or used existing recordings of music. So Carl Kunze's musical reverie test, as he called it, used pieces by, for instance, Debussy, and would ask a listener to sit in a very comfortable armchair, listen to this piece of music, and then tell a story about it, which they then would use to diagnose them with personality, propensities, or disorders. So Chris, so far we've heard how NYU professor Mara Mills has assembled this curious history of auditory projective tests, Mm -hmm. all of which propose to mine some kind of essence from the individual by having them listen to sound and then respond to what they'd heard, which is cool. But what I love about Mara's work and what really inspires me about it is that she uses histories such as these to ask really big questions, questions like, When we test someone, what are we really testing? Where do our notions of normalcy come from? And who or what do these ideas of normal really support? Morgan and Murray described their own process as analysts of these tests as a process of double hearing. And it's interesting that they use the word hearing because they were, again, working with visual projective tests, not the auditory ones. But if the testee is supposed to look at a test and give an interpretation of it. The analyst is giving an interpretation of an interpretation. They're supposed to have double hearing. They're supposed to themselves think about what their interpretation of the test would be, what the average normal interpretation of the test would be, and then think about how the interpretation of the testee works. So yeah, another problem that arose for me is that as a historian, I'm supposed to have triple hearing. Or actually, I wanted myself to have triple hearing. I wanted to will myself into triple hearing. Um, I wanted to let myself take the tat, naively experience it. What did I think of this? And I also had to hear like the psychologist. I had to understand what the psychologist was doing. And then I also have to hear in this very broad socio-historical contextual frame like a historian. I come to this project as a disability historian, and I came to this project as someone interested in access technologies for blind people. So 
the idea that blind people were also going to be subjected to thematic apperception tests just made me question access to what. Of course, it, there's not just access to like nice novels um, and other uh, and sort of things that blind people choose, but there's you know access to like disciplining and diagnosing technologies that were happening at this same moment. You know, the French historian of ideas and philosopher Michel Foucault was asking some similar questions as he looked at historical practices such as diary keeping and letter writing and confession in the Catholic Church. These are all activities where we think we're bearing our soul, right? Right. We're revealing our innermost depths. But Foucault said, no, 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 no. These are the activities, the techniques, these are the technologies by which we really invent the soul. Right in those moments, that's where we construct a self. The self isn't already there inside of us as this kind of unchanging essence, right? We, we invent it through these cultural activities. The ancient Stoics and their journaling, you know, were trying to achieve self-mastery. The Catholic's confession was used to craft a soul that was purged of sin. And in the modern era, psychology and its tests and therapies you know, these are designed to make us well and whole. And Right. And in fact, I mean, I suppose we are increasingly being conditioned by these technologies. Yeah. And so one last thing. There's this historian of science at Harvard, Peter Gallison, and he wrote this great piece about the Rorschach inkblot test where he says, you know, first, in order to even create a test like that, you have to have some sort of a priori idea of what the self is that you're testing for, right? And so there was this idea that there's a deep unconscious, you know, Freudian self that could be evoked or brought out by the inkblot. And back when the first projective tests were invented, you know, only a few bearded, you know, psychoanalysts shared this new kind of modern notion of the self. But what happens? They begin administering the test. And then by the very act of testing, this new notion of the self begins to spread throughout the culture. Oh, yeah. The whole, the, you know, I mean, we see it all. We hear it and we see it all around us right now in terms of uh, arguments about uh, identity, mm. uh, arguments about behavior. And this is the kind of cultural history that Mara Mills is exploring through these auditory projective tests. The thematic apperception tests, the visual ones, were not meant to ever circulate widely because it would bias the test results if someone had seen the image before. Of course, today, in the digital moment, all of the cards, all of the images can be seen easily online. And if you want to look at them, the first problem that immediately one can see is that they are not as generalized, nor as ambiguous, nor as neutral as they were supposed to be. They're supposed to be like ink blots, extremely ambiguous scenes that anyone can relate to and that will plumb something about that person. But of course, they're all scenes of, of white people from the middle of early to mid 20th century. Many of them are middle class scenes. If they're not middle class scenes, then they are scenes which to the modern eye, to the present day eye, represent middle class fears about urban degeneracy. So these are clearly not neutral test-taking instruments in the first place. For Morgan and Murray, 
who did not create a coding scheme, they eventually settled on this idea that the correct answer was the average answer. Reality is what most people perceive. If most people believe that an image of two people embracing is an image of a heterosexual married couple, then that's the correct response. And anyone who interprets that image as a homosexual image, as an image of an affair, as a pedophilic image, whatever, that then is revealing something pathological about themselves. I mean, it's terrifying to think that truth is the statistically typical. There were more complex coding schemes than that, but that is, to me, a quite terrifying way to, to interpret those images. And many of the disorders they were supposed to diagnose, it was often things like sexual disorders. It was often things like homosexuality, which, you know, after 1973 is no longer considered to be a disability. So the suite of things called disabilities at that time, which psychologists were looking for, many of them aren't even considered to be disabilities today. So if you're looking for homosexuality, yeah, you can find it. Um, if they're looking for other affective disorders, they might be able to find it. But it's these are things that we wouldn't even, aren't considered to be fixed traits today and aren't considered to be disabilities today. And certainly the way people use TATS has shifted as the way we think about sexuality has shifted from something that's fixed, from something that's innate, to something that's much more fluid, or the way we think about gender has shifted, or what counts as a disability has shifted. I think what all of this shows us is that normal has a history. Yes. Disability has a history. I think what was also interesting about the auditory projective test for blind people, it could be used to help blind people understand their interests and then think about what kind of education they wanted to get, what kind of jobs they would want to go into. But it could also be used to diagnose additional disabilities. Um, in, a, in a universe of proliferating disability, which is what the 20th century was, as many infectious diseases um, and, and disabilities from prior times began to vanish because of new healthcare interventions, pharmaceutical interventions, a whole host of other disabilities began to be invented, especially in the case of like the DSM, um, psychological disabilities, the proliferation in that realm of disability. It, it's interesting to think of, of blind people then being diagnosed with this whole range of other disabilities, perhaps through the auditory projective test. All of the impairments that, that all of us can be tested for in this particular moment where Disability and impairment are presumed to be lurking everywhere and presumed to be a sort of baseline. You know, back when we were an agrarian nation, there was no such thing as ADHD. Right. Right? Because, like, you know, it didn't exist as a disability because it didn't have a reason to. Uh, when you were, you know, using the plow or what have you, yeah. uh, it didn't require that much trained attention. Right. And also, there weren't that many things around to distract you either. That's right. <laughs> well. <laughs> well. Some birds or, I don't know. Yeah, flies. <laughs> Dust on your shoe. Ha 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 ha!
that's it for this episode of Phantom Power. Thanks to Mara Mills for coming on the show and to Helen Selsden and the American Foundation for the Blind for the use of the auditory projective tests. You can learn more about Phantom Power and find transcripts and links to the things we talked about and find previous episodes of the show at phantompod.org. You can also subscribe to our show there or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you'd rate and review us in Apple Podcasts. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Our music was by Mac Haygood, Graham Gibson and Blue Dot Sessions, as well as Duke Ellington and Claude Debussy. The show was edited by Craig Ailey and Mac Haygood. We bid a fond farewell and happy graduation to our intern Adam Whitmer, and we welcome our new intern Gina Morovich. Phantom Power is produced with support from the Robert H. and Nancy J. Blaney Endowment, the Miami University Humanities Center, and the National Endowment for the Humanities. Mm-hmm.